Lasting joy is found when you stop thinking about yourself and you think about Jesus. Now, you might think that sounds a bit simplistic. I mean, I don't know if this is your first time in church for a while or uh, whether this is your first time in church ever. You might think, how has he got up and said that? That's a bit simplistic. But actually, that's what the Bible says we were created for. We were designed to have lives that operate, revolve around, center on a relationship with his God through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, John, in this account of Jesus' life, his gospel calls that eternal life. And he defines eternal life in chapter 17 of his gospel like this. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the purpose of this book that John's written, uh, that we're looking at in the mornings here at church, is to give you that life. So the strapline of the gospel, we've looked at it before, chapter 20, verse 31 at the end, John says, these, the things you've got in your hands in, in John's gospel, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in relationship with God now and forever. I, I don't know what you, you make about that this morning, but, but that is what is, is, is on offer from God through John's gospel for us. A life in a, a new age that Jesus comes to bring. Oh, we saw that last week described as life in Jesus' kingdom. Life. Now, the, the problem is that I actually spend a lot of time in my life thinking about me, uh, pondering the way I've been treated. Don't know if you do that, do you? You know, ponder the way other people have treated you, whether that was fair or not. Planning how I can make my life easier. Uh, plotting a, a course through the day or the month or the years ahead that, that I think is best for me. And, and the problem I have, I don't know if this is your problem, but the normal circumstances of life rarely mean that my plans and plots come together. For some reason, the rest of the population of the world has not read my agenda. And they seem to get in the way. You know, I think that life ordered around me should be as easy as possible, but, but it just doesn't seem to work. And a lot of the time, it, it just doesn't bring me joy. Now, we can find that hard to admit personally, and we've grown up in a culture, haven't we, which is, is all about self. You're encouraged at school. Do the best you can. Be the best person you can. If, you, if you're struggling in life, you can get classes on self-esteem, self-worth. We're encouraged all the time to think about self. So we find it very hard to admit maybe that our lives personally aren't what they should be. But, but surely it's quite easy to admit globally at the moment, isn't it? I mean, if, if the world is full of people who are largely wired to orientate life around themselves, surely we can admit together globally something's not working. I mean, whether that's the good old business in Parliament, you know, with those brutal debates where, where politicians seem more interested really in getting power for themselves than than defending principle or representing the people, or whether that's all our concern about climate change and, uh, and the way that people just seem to abuse the world for their own comfort and benefit, uh, whether that's the ongoing tensions we see in, in the Middle East. Uh, the, world, the world's not working. I mean, I mean, if I asked you now, put your hand up if you think the world's working, you'd be a very bold person, wouldn't you? Put, you know, put your hand up if you think the world is working today with a world where people live life centered on themselves. 
I was uh, uh, having lunch with a, a mate this week. He's not, he's not a Christian. And he, he literally said to me, look, I'm struggling to sleep quite a bit, uh, Daph, because I'm, I'm worried about my kids and the world that I've brought them into, what their life is going to be like in 10, 20 years' time. Now, now what the Bible says is, is, is that life is not life at all. It's not the life we were made for and not the life this world was created for. It's not the life you can enjoy today and forever. And John's gospel is is telling us about how you can have life. And previously on John, he's made some outrageous claims. He, He starts his gospel with this claim that the eternal God who exists outside in space and time has has come and taken on flesh and become a man. This man, Jesus, he he was always with God and he he was God. He he is a son who has a a father in heaven. And John said, if you you believe in this man, Jesus Christ, then you become a child of God. Then Jesus sets about proving that that's exactly who he is, that he is this God-given Messiah, this ruler and rescuer, and that he's come to bring in an age of abundant blessing, an age where human beings who previously rejected God can draw close to him in intimate, personal, loving relationship. Then we saw last week in in chapter 3, this religious leader, Nicodemus, he he comes to Jesus, and he, he gets this shocking news. He's told, look, Nicodemus, you can't become a child of God through your own effort, through good religious ritual, through church attendance. It's not something you can do for yourself. It's a gift of God to you. He needs to give you new birth by his spirit in your heart so that you come to believe in him. So in the first three chapters of John's gospel, we've got God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. We've got three persons, one God, offering us life. All you've got to do to get this life, says John, look in faith to Jesus. But, but looking in faith to Jesus just isn't that, that easy, is it? it? It's not proving easy for some of the other followers in John. They're not followers of Jesus. They're followers of John the Baptist, the one sent by God before Jesus. His, his disciples, then they're not too chuffed about Jesus' new ministry. In our reading, Jesus starts to baptize. Maybe his followers, his disciples are baptizing. And, and John's disciples, they don't seem too glad about this. In fact, they're not afraid of standing up for their man. Did you see that in verse 25 of our Bible reading? John 3 verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. I mean, they'll take on anyone who's challenging John the Baptist's ministry. And so verse 26, they go to John. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. You know, it's a case of my gang's better than your gang. They resent Jesus' newfound popularity. Even though they've heard John testify about Jesus, even though John the Baptist said, look, here's here's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world. He's going to cleanse the world. He's greater than me because he was before me. 
Even though they've heard John testify about Jesus, presumably they've thought, well, I think we'll stick with John the Baptist. I mean, we're in his gang. That's who we are, disciples of John the Baptist. That's what we're known as. That's where we find our identity. Uh, and now this Jesus bloke, he's, he's robbing us of followers. So John teaches them. And he teaches them about why Jesus Christ, the one who comes to give you life, is so great. Look at verse 30. It's the heart of what we're going to see this morning. Here's the heart of our passage. John the Baptist says, He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. And, and that mantra, mantra is not just true for John the Baptist. It's not just true for his disciples. But that's true for us as well. Not just in the way we view our little life, but actually in the way we view our entire world. Jesus must become greater, we must become less. Whatever your political opinions, whatever your personal passions, whatever your, your particular plans, they must become less and Jesus must become more. Because Jesus is life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. And that's going to be the mantra that brings joy, having a big Jesus and a small us. So, so firstly, look, John tells us this, the joy of becoming less, the joy of becoming less. Here's the first thing John knows. Look at verse 27. John the Baptist says, to this, John replied, a person can only rece can receive only what is given them from heaven. Everything I have, says John the Baptist, is a, is a gift of God. I've not earned it. I don't deserve it. It's been given to me from, from head to toe, from, from beginning to end of life. It's all a gift. Human beings are primarily receivers from God. Now, now just that one simple fact should, should turn our sort of self-absorption a bit to thankfulness, shouldn't it? You know, that's what we expect our kids to do when, when, when we give things to them. You know, we get slightly irritated when they go, more, more, more. We say, what's the magic word? More. No, thank you. Everything we have is a gift of God. And John has been given a uniquely privileged gift in verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. There's great joy in those words, I am not. I am not the Messiah, says John. I'm not God's king. I don't rule my world or anyone else's. I'm not God's rescuer. I can't rescue myself or anyone else from their rebellion against God. I'm not the Messiah, says John. I can tell you that in, in Christian ministry, sometimes I believe that, sometimes I don't. It's quite important that you realize that I am not the Messiah. John knew it. Now, my job is to, to go ahead of Jesus, to go ahead of the Messiah, and get people ready to meet him. And he explains that using a beautiful image from the Old Testament. Look at, look at verse 29 with me. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and now it is complete. At time and time again in the Old Testament, God's people are pictured as a bride, and God is the bridegroom. 
Uh, the one who'll come and sweep them off their feet in love. The one who remains faithful to them when they're unfaithful. The one who's committed to them for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And with God, not even death will break that relationship. And John says, the bride belonged to the bridegroom. These people, they're not to follow me. No, they belong to him. They're his. I'm just like the best man, the friend. My job is to wait for the bridegroom to come. In a, in a Jewish wedding of Jesus' day, the bridegroom would go to the bride's house and he would bring her out of her house and, and take her in a ceremony back to his. So there's no more wonderful sound than the voice of the bridegroom calling out for his love. And there's no greater joy than when he comes to make his bride his. I've heard his voice, says John. My joy is complete. That the bridegroom, the Lord God himself, has come to, in love, make his people, his bride, his. I'm, I'm just a privileged bystander. The day is all about him. It's about the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't seem to be able to escape weddings at the moment. Many of you know that uh, Meg and my daughter got married to Ben a few weeks ago. Then I had to preach on the wedding at Cana at John 2, and I'm back with brides and bridegrooms in John 3. I have to confess I had mixed, mixed feelings as we approached Ben and Megan's wedding. A number of people said that I looked more nervous than Megan walking up the aisle. What you didn't realize is that I'd trodden on her dress in the entrance. I was terrified. I was like, which side was I? I can't remember this side. I was like trying to walk up the aisle like this. You know, I wanted to be close because I felt that was right, intimate, precious moment, but I was quite scared about turning on the dress again. And there were certain aspects of the wedding that I was concerned about. I was a bit concerned about the first kiss. I don't know why. Maybe, you know, you've got your, your daughter and you're thinking, you can't do that, you're only seven. But it was okay. It seemed right when it came. But the day wasn't about me. It was about them. It was about the bride and the bridegroom. And their joy was what mattered. And as I saw their joy throughout the day, well, my joy grew too, because I could see their happiness and their love. That's why John rejoices in drifting into, into the background in his own life. Do you remember what we heard about him in chapter 1? He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. John the Baptist says, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who comes to save you. Jesus is the bridegroom. God's plan is all about him, not me. I've got a privileged role. I introduce the, the bride to the bridegroom, but in the end, verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. That's, that's where joy is, because that is seeing what God is doing in love in his world. In fact, literally it says, it is necessary he becomes greater and I am made less. And the word necessary has the idea of God's will or the divine plan. This is his divine will for the world, that, that Jesus is lifted up and becomes greater in people's lives, and that they are made less in their own thinking as they see the enormity and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a mark of Christian maturity. That, that's actually the path to Christian joy. To, to think more about Jesus and less about yourself. To trust more in Jesus and less in yourself. 
to surrender your life more to Jesus and live less for yourself. To see that, that not just your life, but the life of every human being who has ever lived is about the glory of Jesus Christ. And what John, the writer of the gospel, does, quite complicated, two Johns in this passage, there's John the Baptist and then John the disciple who writes this gospel. What he does in the second half of our passage is show us why Jesus must become greater in our thinking. So here's the second thing to see. The Jesus who must become greater. You know, this is, this is why Jesus must be at the center and the heart of our thinking and our feeling and our dreaming and our living day by day. Now, look what John, the gospel writer, comments, how he comments in verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. It's, it's another bit of John's repetition for the, for the slow ones like me. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is an entirely different category to any other human being. He is from heaven and above all. Everyone else is from earth and can only speak as a human being. There's only one person who's claimed to be a God-man. No other religious leader in the world has ever made that claim. If, you, if you'd said to Muhammad, oh, you are divine, he would have probably cut your head off. If you'd said to the Buddha, oh, you are God, he would have said, you're, you're confused, my son. You know, there is, there is no God. Buddha was an atheist. You know, Confucius would have thought you'd lost your marbles in terms of wisdom. Only Jesus Christ makes this outrageous claim, I am from heaven. I'm the eternal God who's become a man. And therefore only he, says John, can testify about what he's seen and heard in the heavenlies. Everyone else, Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin, Nietzsche, Karl Marx, earthly beings, worldly ideas. Jesus Christ, the only person from outside space-time who's looked in and become one of us. Now, now you and I can go on a tour of Buckingham Palace. Uh, you can go and visit Balmoral. You can go to Sandringham, where the royal family are going of Christmas. We could read all we like about life within the royal household, about the queen. But in the end, there is only one person who can tell you what it is like to be married to Queen Elizabeth II. We can do all the research we want, but we do it from the outside. Only one person can tell you what it is to be the husband of the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh. Only he can give you the inside story. Do you remember John chapter 1, verse 18? No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Literally, who is from the Father's breast, from the, the heart, from the most intimate place with God, his Father, he has come and made him known. Only Jesus can reveal to us what God is like and who he is. That, that's why it's such a tragedy when people reject his testimony. He, do you see that at the end of verse 32? He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. But because when you, when you 
accept or reject Jesus' words. You're not just accepting or rejecting the words of a man about God. You're accepting or rejecting the words of God about himself. So to reject Jesus is to call God a liar. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. Oh, there have been people who've spoken on God's behalf before. The Old Testament prophets, God gave the Holy Spirit to them for a time so they could speak God's word. But Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is given without limit, without measure. Everything he says and everything he does is a full and final revelation of the God who made us and sustains us and gives life to everything. And he's not just a full and final revelation of God, he's God's full and final ruler. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. He literally has the whole world in his hands. That there's nothing, there's no one, who God the Father has not in love given his Son, Jesus Christ, authority over. We're totally dependent on Jesus. Do you realize that? Everything that you've done, experienced, been empowered to do today, you are totally dependent upon Jesus Christ for. The first breath, every breath you drew, everything you've eaten, every step you've taken, anything you've ever done, you're totally in the hands of Jesus Christ. Whether you're awake or asleep now, totally in the power of Jesus. It's why, by the way, when we become a Christian... Uh, it's not making Jesus your king, as though we sort of vote for Jesus, a bit like Brexit or not. I think I'll vote for Jesus now. I'm going with the Jesus party. He's now going to be my king. No, he's the king of all of us all the time. It's merely acknowledging the reality that Jesus rules the whole of your life already. And being in Jesus' kingdom or not is the most important difference between every human being. Did you see that in our last verse, verse 36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's that life again. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Life in relationship with God, with a, with a God quality about it that, that begins now, knowing Jesus, knowing his Father as your Father. Life where you're loved as a, as a perfect bride is loved by her bridegroom on the we her wedding day. Life where you know that though you've rejected God and you've disobeyed him and you've hurt other people and you feel deep shame, he's dealt with all of that on his cross through his son. He has taken upon himself the punishment that you deserve so you're free from it. Life where you know that you're loved despite yourself, not because of yourself. The alternative? Not see that life. Reject Jesus. Love yourself because you make yourself lovable. Remain a rebel against God. Under his, his righteous wrath, his just punishment. The danger of facing a rightly angry God forever just because you want to cling to your self-centered life that doesn't work anyway, rather than enjoying a Christ-centered life. Can you, can you see the enormity of Jesus Christ here? Do you see the scale of him? 
He's, he's literally the axis of history. John the Baptist says, as he's come, everything before must become less because he is greater. He is the turning point of history as, as entry into God's kingdom is made possible. He, he rules your reality. You might not realize it or not, but the reality is Jesus rules over every moment of every day. He reveals divinity. Only he is the one from heaven who can make God known. He's the source of vitality. Life, real life, comes from him. He's the dividing line in humanity, the difference in your destiny. What you make of Jesus Christ is the difference between life. The Bible doesn't even say a better life or life in heaven forever or life forgiven. He just, the Bible just calls it life. If you don't have Jesus, you just don't have life. And the righteous anger of a perfectly loving God. He's the heart of everything God has for you, everything God does for you. It's not just that our lives revolve around Him. It's actually that the whole of the universe is revolving around Him now, and the question is whether, whether we're going to acknowledge that. There's one of those rather beautiful stories told of a very wealthy man who died uh, without an heir, he had a, a great set of possessions. Sadly, his wife and only son had predeceased him. And uh, a crowd of art dealers, therefore, gathered because his will said that all of his possessions should be auctioned off. They gathered in the great hall of his house, you know, priceless treasures on the walls, sculptures around the edge. But the first item, item on, on, on the auction list was this this rather unattractive painting of, of his dead son. And the, auction, the auctioneer said, who, who will bid for me on the painting? Should we start at five pounds? None of the art dealers were interested. They knew what they needed. They needed the, the surrounding beauty and wealth of the world. But there was a little woman at the back. She bid on the painting. Sold to the woman at the back. The auction's over. There's outrage. What do you mean the auction's over? Well, the, uh, the woman who bought it was, was the uh, nanny of the son who, who died as a, as a child. And, and the will read, the one who has the son will have everything. And that's what, what John's saying here. Do you see how big Jesus is? He is the one who is everything. If you love him, you have everything. There is, there is nothing more for God to give you. He is the center of, of everything. That's what John realizes about Jesus. No, no wonder he says, that joy is mine and now it is complete. And we know, don't we, we experience that here, just a tiny taste of that everything now. Because, because we live in the certainty of God's forgiveness. We, we with, live with a, a love we can't be separated from. We live with the presence of Jesus in our hearts day by day. We, we live in, in a church family where we tangibly experience the, the care of God through his people. But you know that 99.99% of everything actually will be experienced when Jesus, our bridegroom, comes and takes us, his bride, home to be with him forever in a perfect new creation, to, to be in a world where none of the, 
the things that bring us sadness will be, where, where God himself will wipe every tear f- from our eyes, and, and we'll be gathered around Jesus, totally obsessed with him, because that's what we're doing, isn't it? In all the Bible's pictures of heaven, we're totally obsessed with Jesus, and we'll know he's everything, and we'll be filled with joy forever, but because of that. Now, here's the question just to end. Is this the heartbeat of your life? He must become greater, I must become less. Now, if you're, not, if you're not yet a Christian here, of course, that's not the heartbeat of your life. But we'd love you to look into this person of Jesus Christ. We'd love you, say, to come on that Christianity Explore course starting on October the 17th. It'll be a non-threatening environment. You can come and just listen to what the Bible has to say about Jesus. We're not going to put you on the spot or ask you questions. You can come for one night and think that was rubbish and never come again. But if you like it, you could come back. We'd love you to just look into the person of Jesus Christ because he is life. And we'd love you to have that life. But, but for those of us who, who, who follow Jesus, it's so easy, isn't it, to treat Jesus as the one who's there to make our lives better, easier, it's, it's not about me becoming less. It's about Jesus doing more for me and, and seeing how important I am. And so we set him agendas and then we get irritated when he doesn't follow them. And, and our culture is so into introspection. We're so into gazing to our navels. We've just got to be very careful as Christians that we realize that we don't need to look at, into our own lives. We need to look at Jesus. I have a friend who very wisely said, the key to the Christian life is for every one look within, ten looks at him. Every one look within, ten looks at him. So how can Jesus become greater for us? Well, John the Baptist and John the Apostle tell us in this passage, what did John the Baptist, what brought him joy? He said, I've listened to the bridegroom. I've heard his voice. What what brings the very voice of the words of the Son of God? What what reveals the beauty of of Jesus to John, the the gospel writer? That only he has testified, he has spoken about what he's seen and heard. You see, the, the Spirit of God on the Lord Jesus Christ means the very words that pour out of his mouth are the words of God. So, so, so Jesus becoming greater and us becoming less must start and end by, by what we feed ourselves on, mustn't it? What, what we obsess about, the, the diet of input into our consciousness. If we're constantly feeding ourselves ourselves, and that's not just, you know, your Instagram feed or your Facebook page or, or your TV screen. That's actually just the way that Throughout the week, the normal diet that comes into our consciousness is is the world that says life is about you, think about yourself, plan yourself, make your life better, you can do it, no, really you can. No, you can, You really you can do it. Plan the life you want, go out and achieve it. That's what you're hearing all the time from the world around you. And, And if we starve ourselves, the truth of the beauty of Jesus... Well, what we'll do is we'll genuinely believe that Brexit, no Brexit, or no deal Brexit is going to make a difference in a thousand years' time or 10,000 years' time when we've been enjoying a new creation with Jesus. We'll genuinely believe that our lives are radically going to be altered by the political situation over the next three months. Can I tell you? They're not. 
If you've got life in Jesus, they're not going to be altered that radically. It does matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but, but actually we'll genuinely believe that, that that's what matters, or we'll genuinely believe that the next job we can get or the next holiday we can plan or, or, or the ne next gadget we can get, the iPhone 11 Pro will bring me joy. If we, if we just let the world around us dominate our thinking. But, but if we'll come and we'll listen to the Word of God, we, we might pick it up as we've been talking in our evening services for a few minutes each day. If we'll come and meet with this beautiful Jesus Christ, if we'll just let our consciences be, be focused around him for a few minutes, maybe a few minutes more each day, if maybe we'll, we'll read a, the odd Christian book or, or listen to the odd sermon online, then maybe we'll hear of this life as our eyes are, are brought to bear on the one who's come from heaven that we might know God and gone to a cross that we might be made his children and loves us continually and with such a passion that, that cannot be taken from us. The Son of the Father who's made real in our lives by His Spirit. And maybe if we did that, we'll just think, that, that's life. That's life. Jesus is life. And I'm, I want Him to become greater in my consciousness. And I'm willing to become less. And, and I've, I've said this in John's Gospel already, and I'll say it again. That won't make the circumstances of Monday morning different. That, that won't make the fact that you're going to lose your job in three weeks not hard to bear. That won't make the, the, the disease you face not crippling and difficult. That won't make the loss of a loved one not something that breaks your heart. But it will put it in the perspective of eternity. And you'll go through it as one who has life. Life in the Son. Life with Jesus Christ. Will you make that your prayer? That he might become greater as we become less. Let's pray together. Father, we've all come this morning with all sorts of things crowding in. Some of us have come and it's been a battle to get here in the rain with screaming children. Some of us have come and our hearts are broken because we don't have screaming children. Some of us have come and we're struggling with, with physical pain. Some of us are feeling the heartache of a, a recently lost loved one or fear that we might lose someone we love soon. Some of us are worried about our money situation. Some of us are worried about our friendships. Our Father, we, we are a people gathered in the reality of life in this world. And we ask that you would raise our eyes from ourselves just for a brief moment, and you'd fix our eyes on Jesus, uh, the one who gives life. And we'd see how loved we are. And we'd see how great he is. And we'd see his rule over all things. And we'd see the security of our future in him. And we'd see the power of his spirit with us day by day. And Lord, in our consciousness, he would become greater. 
and we might become a little less. For his name's sake. Amen.